and then we will jump right in. Father, I thank you that we are here together, that we are ready to, um, to learn about you, and I just pray that you would, would open our eyes and open our hearts to what you have for us today. I know that I know that I looked at this passage through a different set of eyes this week, and I just, I just thank you for that. I thank you that, that your word is living and active and that it does meet our needs no matter where we are. So God, just be with us as we are, uh, as we are learning. Be with us as we are praying together later in our small groups. Um, just pray that this would be an encouraging time for all of us. Amen. So, we are making our way through the book of Ruth. Naomi and her family fled from Bethlehem in an attempt to flee from God. While in Moab, Naomi was emptied of everything, including her husband and sons. And she returned to Bethlehem bitter and with nothing. We have seen Ruth the Moabite, the daughter-in-law of Naomi, dedicate her life to Naomi and to Israel. She left all that she knew to follow Naomi and, 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 and Naomi's nothingness. Uh, Ruth went to glean in the fields and just so happened upon a field owned by Boaz, a relative of Naomi's. And Boaz took notice of Ruth, took care of her while she was gleaning. And then Naomi hatched a plan and Ruth obediently followed it to, in essence, propose to Boaz. Boaz agreed but he said there was one small problem, a closer relative that had to be taken care of first. And so that's Ruth one through three in a very small nutshell. Uh, if you have missed lessons, they are online, so you can watch those videos if you want. Um, on your homework, I asked you about your thoughts on a theme for chapter three. I know Sandy mentioned the midnight meeting and waiting on God as the theme. And we talked about the fact that there is not just one right answer for theme. And so as you read and meditated on chapter 3 this week, did anyone have additional thoughts for a theme? And if there's a key verse that would support that theme um, as you were sort of thinking about it this week. I just wanted to give you that opportunity since I asked it on your homework. Yeah. Trust in her uh, Ruth is a trust in Naomi's advice, and also uh, trust in the Boaz's character because she was putting putting herself out there. Yeah, tr trust both for Ruth with Naomi and Ruth with Boaz. That's exactly right. Yeah, and, and Marta was saying verse, chapter 3, verse 5 was kind of the, the theme verse that, or the key verse for her, hers, which was the, and she replied, all that you say I will do. Melissa. Patience. Patience for Ruth. That's exactly right. Yeah, one of the 
one of the uh, headings for in one of the commentaries I read said Naomi's undercover operation, which I just thought was funny. So, so I, I liked that one. Um, but, but there's also just the promise, the promise of redemption. You know, Boaz left it as, if he won't, if that closer relative won't, then I will. And so there was just a, 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 an agreement f- for that. Exactly. And how Ruth just didn't know what was going to happen. She, she truly did have to trust. Like Marta said, there was, there was a, a confidence that she would be taken care of, but not knowing the details of how that would happen. And that's, that's actually where we're going to start. We're going to start by reading um, uh, chapter 3, verse 18, just to sort of get that get that feeling exactly like Joyce was saying, that feeling of where Ruth is right now. So it says, she replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out for the man, you will not, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. And so, so here we've, we left Ruth and Naomi. Is that one my, no. Okay, good. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Um, we left Ruth and Naomi at home, and they are just waiting in anticipation for Boaz to carry out this plan. They are completely hands-off at this point. They have no say, they have no knowledge until somebody comes and tells them. Um, and, and yet again, Ruth is taking on the part of almost, almost a pawn in this where somebody else is in control and and she is waiting for God to move and to act. But this is another example of Ruth, of the author pushing Ruth into the background. This is, we're bringing the action back to Boaz and Ruth, while she's named in the passage we're going to talk about today, she is not present in the passage we're going to talk about today. But it does give us, the verse 18 there gives us the when of today's passage. And so when, when is this all happening? When is Boaz going to act? Yeah, now, the very same day, right? And then we get into um, our actual passage for today, Uh, Ruth 4 verses 1 through 12 and I'm going to read the whole thing now and then there are going to be times I'll reread certain verses as we go through but uh, it says now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there and behold the redeemer of whom Boaz, Boaz had spoken came by so Boaz said turn aside friend sit down here and he turned aside and sat down and he took and he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said sit down here so they sat down. Then he said to the, re- to the Redeemer, Naomi has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. 
Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are the witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech, and all that belonged to Kilian and to Malan. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malan, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give, will give you by this young woman. So our, our, our where, we did our when, our when was the same day, but, but where does this take place? At the gate. At the, gate, at the city gate. Now, pause for a second and think about the layout of a city in Bible times. Uh, when you think about the stories from Joshua with Jericho, with Nehemiah and the walls of Jerusalem, cities of the time were surrounded by walls, and those walls were there to protect the people that lived in the city but the fields and the pastures were then outside the walls. Uh, the only way in and out were to go through, through the gates. Now there were more than one gate for different purposes and depending on which city you were in made the number um, of, of gates. But there was still a, a main gate in every city and everyone entering and leaving the city had to go through a gate and that's why much of the business of the city took place at the gates. My dad, when I was growing up, he, he worked for the city of Berea in Kentucky. Um, and, and when I was young, very young, his office was located inside City Hall. And I always loved when we had the chance to go into his office, though it didn't happen very often. Um, but City Hall was this fancy building, and it had these ornate columns outside, out, out front, and, and inside there were um, marble floors at the entrance. You know, you walked in, and there was this big old open area with this huge ornate staircase going up to the second floor. And his office was there on the first floor, uh, so we rarely got to go up the stairs. But I remember. I remember one time when we did get to go up the stairs and I remember just this feeling of just awe because here I was, I wasn't just able to stare at the courtroom across the lobby from his office. I got to go up those big fancy stairs, right? This was, this was just, this was the place where business of the city was conducted. 
And, and as a kid, I would just be in awe. It was the center of city life. But it was also like, like the town squares where we think about, you know, I was walking with some friends on Saturday through the square in Mannheim. Um, one of the people I was with had, had grown up, been born and raised in the area, and her grandparents actually own one of the buildings on the square. And so she was telling us about, about different stores that had been there and different things and how it, was, how it used to be and how it used to be just a thriving area for shoppers and visiting and doing. And so you have to combine the city hall idea and the town square idea into one thing to get what was happening at those gates. Um, so, so we have to remember that the gate was more like a courthouse, a city hall, and a town square than just a road out of the town. Uh, it was it was an important place, and not just not just a place where people sat down and, and visited, but they actually conducted business at the gates. Um, there are in the book of Judges some of the judges actually functioned their their assigned place was at the gates. That's where they would do their judging. Um, and so when we think about the gates, we think about this location. It's not just a door. It's not just an entrance. There's, there's, it's a, a bigger picture to it than that. But then our, our, so that was our where. So we know our when is the same day. Our where is the city gates. But our who for this passage also changes drastically. Our title character is no longer present, uh, and nor is, nor is Naomi. We see Boaz. We see the closer relative, and we see the ten elders. And so as we look through our passage, we're going to dig in a little more to those, those three sets of, of people. Um, but before we can even get into the, to the who, let's figure out, let's, let's rem remember, let's review the, the concept of kinsman redeemer and leveret marriage that Sandy taught us last week. And so both of these concepts were part of the Jewish law, part of the Torah, those first five books of the Bible. Um, we're not going to, I know I gave out, somebody has a Deuteronomy passage. We're not going to read it yet. Um, but the, the concept of the leveret marriage is covered in Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10. That's the way to redeem someone from poverty and protect the family name and the widow. And one thing to note when you're looking at that Deuteronomy passage is that it, it refers specifically to a brother and not just a close relative. And that's going to be something we're going to talk about some more. Um, then, then there was the concept of the, and so leveret marriage, that was where it was the, the husband dies without a child, the brother marries the widow. To, to pass on the name of, of the, the dead husband. L-E-V-I-R-A-T-E. The levier is a brother-in-law, is what it sort of translates to. So then, the, then there's the concept of the kinsman redeemer. This one's covered in Leviticus 25, um, 
specifically verses 23 through 25, but that whole, um, the whole chapter of Leviticus 25 sort of interconnects with some of those concepts as well. Um, this, is, this is the redemption of the property, for the property to stay in the family. This is, the purpose behind this law is for it to act as a reminder that God owned the land and it was the part of the promised land and it needed to stay as part of the promised land and stay in the family of, of Israel. Um, and so it was a way to protect the poor and to protect the land. Um, but, but the, in addition to the, to that kinsman redeemer property law specifically mentioned in Leviticus 25, there's also this section describes things like the Sabbath year and the year of Jubilee, which also govern the sale and the use of, of land during that time. Um, it's important to note, and I, I did not write down all the references, but there are several times in the Old Testament that Jewish leaders were re rebuked for stealing land from the helpless, and so they were breaking the laws of Leviticus 25. Um, next semester, we're going to look at the book of Daniel. We're going to dig into Daniel where they are exiled in Babylon. And so somebody has Second Chronicles 36, 20 through 21. until the land had enjoyed the Sabbath. As long as he lay desolate, he kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. So even the, the Israelites, including Daniel, would spend 70 years in Babylon slash Persia because they hadn't obeyed these Sabbath and Jubilee laws of God that are in Leviticus 25. Um, and and so those, the way that all these things work together, you know, we've got, uh, that was one punishment of God for not obeying his law. We talked about that the famine that Naomi and Elimelech fled was likely a way for them to flee from a punishment of God, not just for them, but for the whole, the whole body of Israel. Um, God cares about these things. These things are important to God, and that's, that's something we need to be keeping in the back of our mind as we're, as we're studying Ruth, is it wasn't just by chance that, that Boaz decided, oh, I'm going to follow these laws. It was truly the, the thing to do. Um, but for these laws, for this leveret marriage and this kinsman redeemer, uh, to be carried out, there were, there were three big criteria that had to be met. So first, they had to be a close relative. Um, in the, the marriage portion, it, it specifically says brother, but, but the uh, kinsman redeemer property version, portion, it, it is just close relative. Um, second, 
they had to have some level of wealth because they had to be able to pay the redemption price to buy back the land, to, to bring it back into the family. And then third, they had to be willing. So close relative, financial ability, and willingness. Those are the three things that we're going to look at with, with Boaz and this other man as we dig into the passage. So Naomi, there in the verse from chapter 3 that we read, said, he would, Boaz will not rest. And we see clearly that he does not. He wakes up, he's out in the, in the fields where the threshing is going on, and he comes into town, and he stops at the gate, and he's ready to go. Um, but he's also, he's also very aware of how business is conducted at the city gate. This isn't his first time to be there, to be doing something. There was a level of prominence for him. Boaz knows the process and he takes control. He he's, has the venue, he stops the closer relative as he came by, and he seats the witnesses. And so we see that, that he's there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz, Boaz had spoken came, came by. And so he just, if, if you look at it, lin, lin, the literal translation of that, it, he just wandered by. Now, it would have been normal for it to happen, for him to come by. So there was a level of, of expectation that he would be there. It was a different word than the chances chance of Ruth going to glean in Boaz's field. But there was still a level of God's providence that he just wandered by. Um, it was still a clear example of God's perfect timing in this. And so from just verse 1, where it's just, Behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. What do we know about this man? Not much. He's willing to sit down, but we don't know his name. But he's a closer relative. We know that because he was the redeemer. So he's a closer relative. He knew Boaz and he trusted Boaz to some extent because... He sat down, but we don't even know his name. Uh, one of the interesting things where the ESV, which is what your version here is, says, turn aside friend. Um, it, the Hebrew literally says, and I'm going to butcher the pronunciation, but bear with me. It says, Peloni Almoni. It literally means a certain one. But in reality, when they used this phrase, it was, it was literally calling him John Doe. It was literally just a um, meaningless phrase to get his attention to come over. So not only is his name not mentioned, he's given this meaningless reference that... Sort of like, hey, you. Yeah, like a, hey, you. Yeah, kind of like a, hey, you. Hey, you, stop. Come sit down. Um, the, so, so one commentator suggested the name of the kinsman was either unknown or purposely concealed. 
So considering that Boaz is aware of the other kinsman's existence, which scenario seems most likely to you and why? But wouldn't Boaz have known him if he was a relative? Mm-hmm. So why did he say, hey, you? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so why would he say it? Maybe, maybe to keep it a secret. What's he communicating? Because this was the place where business was conducted. There would have been lots of people around. What was he communicating to everybody else by saying, hey, you, come sit down? Okay, could have been privacy. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that one. assertion for himself yeah there there was some reason that Boaz knew this man and didn't use his name maybe he didn't care for him maybe he didn't care for him no that that's actually one that I wrote down is 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 about that so so yeah We've, we've talked about throughout the Bible, not just this study, but, but in others, how names are of utmost importance in the Bible. As we're going to see, um, even like, yeah, that, that even the word name would be related to their reputation. So somebody has Proverbs 3, 3 through 4. Did you catch that? You'll win favor and a good name, right? That's, that concept of a name is your reputation, particularly in the Old Testament. And so the fact that Boaz didn't give his name, there was something about this man that made him not give the name. Um, our narrator, our, our, our author, has been so focused on names throughout and so focused on identity throughout our book. Focused on Ruth the Moabite. You know, I had you mark in your, in your books the times when she was just Ruth, the times she was labeled as daughter-in-law, and the times she was Ruth the Moabite, and noticing those differences as it goes through. And so Boaz did not use the man's name. It's a, it, it presents, uh, it, it indicates a lack of importance for this man. We can already tell by just this verse that he's not going to matter in the long run because his name was not given. Killian's name was given. All he did was marry Orpah and die. <laughs> right? And so it's, it presents a definite contrast between Boaz and this other redeemer. It's almost that, like the narrator wants to present him in a negative light. Um, this book, uh, The Girls Still Got It by Liz Curtis Higgs, if you 
haven't read it, I highly recommend it. I actually just ordered her book on Esther because I got so excited rereading re 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 this one again. Um, she says, Boaz surely knows this kinsman. Has he momentarily forgotten the man's name? Happens to me all the time. Great to see you um, again. Or, or is the storyteller letting us see how unimportant this guy is? As a novelist, she also writes novels. Very good author. Um, there's one that actually, she was born in this area. So there's one that actually takes place in Lidditz called Bookends, where um, they're actually building the library in Lidditz. So if you remember that period of time, might be interesting for you to read. I enjoyed it, and I'm not even from Lidditz, so. <laughs> but anyway, as a novelist, I name my primary and secondary characters, but walk-ons get little more than a brief description. Gray-haired man with roomy eyes, couple in rustic clothing, coy dairy-made with dimples. A name says pay attention. No name says never mind. And so we know that Boaz's motives are pure. We've seen that in the first three chapters of Ruth, but we don't know anything about the other man. But the man sat. That indicates that he had great respect for Boaz. He didn't ask why. He just said, okay, I'll take a seat. No problem. So Boaz is in control. He finds 10 elders. These would have been men from prominent families, Boaz would have been one of them through a number of situations that may have come up at the gate. Um, they sit as well. Again, no questions about what it is that they're going to do. This, again, just tells you Boaz's character. They knew a business matter needed to be discussed, and they knew that Boaz was ready to get down to business. And so then we get into like the almost court proceeding here. Um, we don't know the exact relationship to the, of the men to Elimelech. However, it is likely not brother, not specifically a brother, because they use the word relative instead of brother. Um, I gave somebody Numbers 27, 9 through 11. Sandy. this is the line of inheritance women are not mentioned at all right it's all the male relatives throughout there um, and and so so in reality Naomi had no rights to the land specifically but in verse 3 there it says Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. Um, first, this is the first time that a piece of land is mentioned. But likely, um, Elimelech had mortgaged the land in some way to have money to leave. And upon his death, that land went 
to Malon as the son, based on our passage in Numbers, which would technically mean Ruth is selling this piece of land, is trying to redeem this piece of land. Um, but Boaz chose to bring up this piece of land, chose to not bring up Ruth, and and he's he's really um, well. Why why do you think why do you think he brought up this piece of land and not marriage, not Ruth, nothing like that? He's a very shrewd businessman. A shrewd businessman. Too many contingencies. Yeah. And isn't he really that to redeem the work of being a Christian, not that it means they get along, but yeah. Yeah, maybe maybe he knew the man would go for the land and he wanted to sort of show that and point that out. Yeah. But wait, there's more. Yeah, so he did the land first. He did it intentionally. He he's working the crowd. <laughs> uh, I have a question. Yeah. Uh, which was the more important? I mean, did that have anything to do with it? You know, that he actually said, "Well, here's the land. Was that the problem? You know, in those types of things, or was it the?" Yeah. In in reality, the carrying on of the name is what's important. But the name carried through both the land and the children. So there was, there was a level of uh, almost equality between the two. Um, but he almost makes it sound like he's an afterthought. Right. Yeah. The land is definitely the easier to accept. And so there's a good chance that that was, that was why the land was first. Um, they, they really, in reality, Naomi isn't concerned about the land, right? She could care less about a piece of land that she can't own. She is looking for security. She is concerned with her livelihood. But this is one of those moments where we see Boaz's true intentions. The whole time you're kind of like, is he in love? Is he not in love? What, what's going on with his mind? And so here we start to see maybe he really does care more about Ruth than about the land. Melanie. Yeah, so let's see what he then says, right? Because he then, he says, Boaz says, I, I was going to tell you about this land, so you knew you had this opportunity. Um, and, and again, this is that concept of land can't be sold permanently. The year of, of Jubilees comes back. Dig into Leviticus 25 if you want some more information on that. We could have done that, but we would be here for hours. So 
but but the big thing is the that um remembering that the land is a gift from god it's the promised land they've just come into the promised land and are settling the promised land right we're in the time of the judges it's not a lot of time has passed since they've finally just landed and settled um and so they are trying to get everything to just remain intact but he's he's implying to this um the part of the implication of of this man because he immediately agrees i'll 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 redeem it yeah that sounds great so part of the implication might be because if we think about it he didn't know necessarily about ruth either right everybody in town knew about ruth knew that she this moabite had just come into town right was here with with naomi and um and so, so there's a, there's a kind of a hint, no, nothing direct, but kind of a hint that maybe he didn't actually own land in Bethlehem, that he was still part of the family, but that he had moved elsewhere within the promised land. So, so being offered the chance to buy land in Bethlehem could have been a very big deal. And so he agrees to buy it. And in his mind, he's agreeing to support an old widow, Naomi, right? That's who, that's who Boaz said. Um, this is one of those places where I, I like looking at different versions of the Bible, the way different versions translate the Bible. I use certain ones for study, but there are others that, that you can gain so much uh, extra feeling and understanding by reading different versions of the Bible. So the, in, um, in our ESV, it says then Bo, in verse 5, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance. If you have the, the New Living Translation, it says, of course, your purchase of this piece of land also requires that you marry Ruth the Moabite. So it's just like, of course, you, you know this, right? Uh, the message, which is one I don't recommend for study necessarily, but it does really convey emotion very well um, because it, it, it's clearly a, a, a paraphrase of scripture, but it says, it says, you realize, don't you, that when you buy the land, you also get Ruth the Moabite along with the responsibility to have children with her. <laughs> right? That's, that's what Boaz is telling him. Yeah, just laying it all out. So technically, officially, there is nothing in the the Leveret marriage, the Deuteronomy 25 passage that obligated either Boaz or the closer relative to marry Ruth. That is specifically listed as brother. Neither man was legally bound by this, but there was a moral obligation. And Boaz was prepared to operate on these, on these grounds. And the question at hand is, the question that that Boaz is asking this other man, this closer relative, 
was he ready to do the same? So by the letter of the law, if you follow it strictly, Elimelech's name, dead and done. It's gone. There's no one left. Ruth did not have to marry Boaz. She chose to do so. And Boaz does not have to marry Ruth. He is also making that a choice. But the elders of the town allow these two to come together, these two laws, this kinsman redeemer and this leveret marriage to come together as one. Why do you think the elders of the town would allow this? Respect for Boaz. To keep peace. It was the right thing to do. It was the right thing morally to do. Yeah, and Ruth has shown her nobility to these to these townspeople. They would see her going out every morning and coming in. These are men who would, would sit by the gate if they weren't working themselves and the times they weren't working themselves, they would watch her go out early and come back late at night and carrying all this, all this grain. They would, have, they would have seen her dedication to Naomi. And maybe, just maybe, they just want what's best for Ruth. Maybe for once they're thinking about the woman, right? Um, and, and it's it's likely there was a level of this was an accepted practice even though the law says this they followed this other um, I have this picture I took when Andrew was probably four years old and it pops up every once in a while on my computer it's a couple of uh, small blankets and a couple of stuffed animals sitting right at the top of our stairs like literally the top like right above the top step, right where you sit, you step on to the, to the main floor of the house. Every time I think of this picture, I smile. Because I was busy with two-year-old Catherine and trying to get Andrew to clean up his mess. And I said, Andrew, take your toys upstairs. Right, the letter of the law was followed. He took his toys up the stairs. Now, my intent in the law was to take them to his room. <laughs> these were all toys that went in his bed, so he didn't even have to find a place on a shelf for these toys. But he put them at the top of the stairs because all I said was take them upstairs. The closer relative wants to follow the letter of the law. And Boaz wants to follow the spirit or the morality of the law. As Christians, we have a great moral obligation. We should not be just following the letter of the law, but the intent and the morality of the law. You know, Catherine has shown interest recently in, um, she's enjoyed historical fiction for a while, but recently in World War II specifically. And so she asked about reading the diary of Anne Frank. I had a copy, I gave it to her. And she started reading it and really enjoyed it. And then we suggested, because I also had a copy of, of 
The Hiding Place by Corey Tinboom. So she read Anne Frank and, and just was so amazed by the life in that, uh, that time period, but hiding, life in hiding. And then giving her the, the hiding place where it's life as a rescuer. Corey Tinboom and her family broke the law, broke the letter of the law by protecting people in, that, in, their, in their house, in that hiding place in their house. They followed a moral obligation and not a legal op obligation. Andrew is at home today. The high school is closed for Mannheim. Um, there was a positive COVID test yesterday, only one. So legally they did not have to close, but the one positive result came at 10 o'clock last night. They did not have time to do contact tracing, to do any sort of extra cleanup, to do anything. And so as a school, they decided the moral thing to do to follow the spirit of the law for safety was to have all the kids do online school today, do the contact tracing today, do the cleaning that needed to be required today so that they can then go back to school in person and that they can protect people and they've decided to play it safe instead of instead of following the letter of the law. Um, when, we th when we think about this, I want you all to take some time this week to think about where it is that you might need to follow the spirit of the law and not the letter of the law. Maybe, maybe that's with tithing. We know that the Old Testament dictates 10%, but we know that the New Testament says be generous. We know that we should be in, in church on Sunday mornings or, um, you know, that there are a number of verses that tell us do not give up meeting together to worship. But what happens if you miss one? You know, do you need to follow the spirit or the letter of the law in those things. You have an opportunity to vote next week. You don't have to vote next week, but you need to decide, is it your moral obligation to vote versus following the letter of the law where it's, I have the right, but I don't have to go. I don't have to wait in line. I don't have to do, but should you? So just take some time this week Think about where you need to follow the spirit of the law more than the letter of the law. But then back to Ruth. Boaz says, you're going to acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Boaz is not painting a pretty picture of Ruth, right? Think back to our first lesson. Moab was the enemy of Israel. You did not want to associate with anything Moab. 
nothing, Moab. And here he brings up Ruth, that foreigner, and not just a foreigner, the foreigner from the country that we're supposed to despise. That Ruth, yeah. Um, widow of the dead, he says. There's, when he says widow of the dead, if you just said widow, right? Widow, you know, the husband died. But here he repeats it, widow of the dead. It's a, it's a repeated thing in Hebrew. That means it's emphasized, widow of the dead. Emphasizing that she is, number one, not a virgin. So she's like damaged goods, right? But number two, and if you, we'll get to it later, but you think about the story of Tamar. Those, the, those husbands, those brothers were wicked in the sight of the Lord. Here, Elimelech took his sons to another country and not just another country, to Moab, right? They were wicked in the sight of the Lord and they died. Did they die because of being wicked, not going there? But to this other man, it may be a, a, a concept of, well, what if I do something wrong? Am I going to die too? Is she really like cursed in some way? Yeah. <laughs> but then there's the concept too. He has to redeem her because they had no children. She might be barren. And that was a huge deal at this point in time. He is doing everything he can to get this closer redeemer to say, I want nothing to do with that. And so then the Redeemer says, I cannot redeem it for myself lest I impair my own inheritance. Why would it impair his own inheritance? I know, Elizabeth, I'm going long. I apologize. We are like, it was exciting passage this week. <laughs> So selfish, mm -hmm. yeah. He may have had another wife already with other sons. Or another wife with other sons. Yeah. Yeah, going passing to to sons. If he already had a wife and and other sons, what what does that do to them? Yeah, yeah, that's entirely possible that having another family would just mess with things. And for some people, that would be awkward to just have a second wife pop up, you know. <laughs> by, by agreeing to buy the land and agreeing to redeem Ruth, he would bear a son with Ruth to give the land to her son. He would never truly own the land himself. If he had only one son, the family name and the land would all go to Elimelech Malon's name and not to his name. 
Um, and then there's the aspect of, and again, digging in deep to the, to the law, the Torah there, the fact that she, he would be marrying a foreigner, there were some laws related to some of those types of things as well. Um, not going to dig too deeply into that. But what we do see is even with all of that, Boaz is still interested in marrying Ruth. This is an example of that Hesed love that Boaz has toward Ruth. And the irony is, he says, lest I impair my own inheritance, your name was really the biggest part of your inheritance. Is his name mentioned? Not at once. We don't know his name. Whose names do we know? Boaz, Elimelech, Malon, Kilian, who only married Orpah. That was his claim to fame, right? We've got all these other names. We've got the names of the women and not his. So Boaz took the risk and is remembered forever. God has a plan for each of us. And, and like Jeremiah 29, 11 says, it's a plan to prosper us and not to harm us. It's a plan to give us hope in a future. And when we are obedient to the will of God, we get to participate in that plan. We will prosper because we are living in the will of God. We don't need our names to be remembered or blessings of wealth or material things. It's not you do good, you get good. That's not what I'm saying. But I firmly believe that when you are living in the will of God, that's the best place to be, hands down, no matter what. And so in addition to thinking about what your moral obligation is versus the letter of the law this week, I want you to think about whether there is some way, I want you to take some time to pray and see if there's something you should be doing to obey God's will and then take the steps to do it. Open yourself up to following God so that he has the opportunity to bless you. Now then we get into this fun part where it just seems really weird, right? A shoe. Right? <laughs> a shoe. Why a shoe? So when you think about a shoe, um, Ray and I, we have about the same size feet. His are normal size, mine are just massive, <laughs> just to let you know. So if his shoes were next to the door and I just needed to run out to get the mail, I would slide on his shoes or he would be vice versa, right? But when I throw on his shoes, they feel funny to my feet, right? If he's worn them for any length of time and I put my feet in them, they, they don't feel right. They aren't molded to my feet. They're molded to his feet. If you've ever borrowed a pair of shoes, if, if you were the, wore the same size shoe as your mother or your daughter and you traded shoes every once in a while you would experience that that 
that feeling that it's just not quite right. And it's not that they're not broken in. They just don't fit your feet, right? So, so the footprint was embedded in that shoe. That's part of why a shoe. But the other reason is because one of the ways outlined in the, the Torah is that you would walk, before you bought land, you would walk the boundary of that land to make sure you measured it appropriately. And so the shoe being passed from, from one to another was the footprint. It was the, the land transaction. And then um, I gave Deuteronomy 25, 9, and 10 to somebody. So the, as part of this law governing these concepts, it was the widow would come and take the shoe off and spit in their face if they didn't do what they were supposed to do. And he would be known as the family of the unsandaled, right? It was, it was a kind of a dishonor to go walking around without a shoe on as well. And so there was that aspect. It's not quite the same situation. Not a brother, remember all those things. So not quite to the same extent, but that was, that was one aspect of why the shoe was important as well. So we have the exchange of the shoe. He can't go, the, the closer relative cannot go back on his, his deal uh, any longer. The ten witnesses have seen this. And so then Boaz summarizes the transaction for everyone to, to hear, including not just the elders, but anyone who was standing around at the time. Boaz is going to make Elimelech remembered. And, but Boaz, when he says it, and let me find it again on my page, it says, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech, and all that belonged to Kilian and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife. And he goes on, but why do you think he used the name Ruth the Moabite? Because earlier he was using Ruth the Moabite to dissuade this closer relative. So why do you think he's using Ruth the Moabite here? Nothing has changed. What was it, Dee? So still trying, there, a, a level of still trying to in, discourage the other guy? Melon? A redeeming of her. Yeah, part of it was that he was trying to honor her heritage and say, I don't care about that. I am still going to marry her. So there was a level of that as well. Um, that was still legally who she was until they actually got married. She was still Ruth the Moabite. And, and that was the way of, of a, a way of honoring her background. 
And then there's the blessing from the elders. The elders give a blessing to Ruth and Boaz. Of course, Ruth is still at home at the time, but um, giving the blessing to to Boaz. And, and that blessing is just, it, it's extraordinary in itself. Because it says, we are witnesses, may the Lord, and when that L-O-R-D is capitalized, they are the calling on the name of the Lord, calling on Yahweh, calling on the Hebrew God for a foreign woman. And they are calling on this, the, the Hebrew God to make a place for this foreign woman among the matriarchs of Israel with Rachel and Leah. In essence, they are saying, Ruth is no longer a Moabite, but is now an Israelite, when they say those words. Then they ask for, for the, when it says, um, built up the house of Israel, to build up the house is to have children. It's like the fancy way of saying it. In the Jewish culture, part of, part of this was they knew a Messiah was coming. To have a Messiah, you had to have a child at some point. And so knowing that was important. Continuing the Jewish nation was important to carry it out. And so having children was important. Um, we're going to skip the part. So whoever had Genesis, I'm sorry, you get skipped. Um, but when we think about Bethlehem, um, because it says, may you be renowned in Bethlehem, um, we, we want to remember Bethlehem was the city of David, the birthplace of Jesus. It was also the burial site of Rachel when she died. But then he talks about um, be like the house of Perez. Perez would have been also in Bethlehem. And so um, the Tamar's story is in Genesis 38. I would encourage you, if you have a chance this week, to, to open up and read it this week. It's really uh, interesting to read it in light of reading the story of Ruth. But does anybody remember anything about her story? Um, her father-in-law was supposed to marry her and he did not. Well, it was that or, she was married, she was married to Judah's son. Right. Judah's son was wicked, so Judah, so he died. Judah then gave Tamar to his second son who was also wicked, also died. He had a third son, but he was afraid. And so he didn't give Tamar to that third son. And so Tamar tricked Judah, tricked the father into getting her pregnant. Um, and, and ended up bearing twins, Perez and Zerah. If you read the whole story, you'll see Judah recognized his sin in the whole thing. So, um, but Judah was blessed through Perez, a child who was born in sin, and, and from Perez came Boaz, and later David, and then later Jesus. So Tamar was a story of a kinsman redeemer in action, and this was in Genesis before all the rest of this was written down completely. 
um, so before it was written as a law. And so, so here the elders are recognizing the, the comparison between Ruth and Tamar, which is why I think it would be interesting for you to read. Um, the elders are, are seeking blessings for Ruth and for Boaz. Um, and Warren Wearsby, my good buddy Warren, he, he says, What wonderful changes came into Ruth's life because she trusted Boaz and let him work on her behalf. She went from loneliness to love, from toil to rest, from poverty to wealth, from worry to assurance, and from despair to hope. She was no longer Ruth the Moabitess. The past was gone, and she was making a new beginning. She was now Ruth, wife of Boaz, a name she was proud to bear. 